Listener Production. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn, and lead. And just before we start, a warning that this episode contains references to sexual assault and mental health issues. The episode was recorded at the Future Women Leadership Summit early March 2021, during celebrations to mark International Women's Day. But they were overshadowed by shocking allegations of rape, sexual abuse and systemic injustice within Parliament House Canberra. And emotions were running high. In some cases, summit attendees were reliving suppressed memories of workplace abuse. As the delegates arrived and the summit kicked off, the discussion consistently returned to this one almost unbelievable story. It was impossible to contain, so we didn't try. Instead, we changed the running order and the last minute dedicated an entire session to discussing what felt like a watershed moment for Australian women. Here's Future Women's Jamila Rizvi. I was 22 years old when I started working as a government staffer at Australian Parliament House. I was employed there for four years. I grew up in a building where everybody else seemed very grown up. And it wasn't until years later that I realised just what an unusual experience that really was. Let me set the scene. One night I was at a hotel bar with a dozen or so colleagues. Most of them are men, everyone is drunk. It's after 11 at night, we have an early start in the morning, but that doesn't seem to bother anyone very much at all. There are two women, aside from me, neither of whom I know very well. We're seated together on this long couch, sitting primly with our knees together because those skirt suits were still cool then, which is very good that it's not the case anymore. The man who had been sitting to my left stood to make his goodbyes. He's a married father. We've been chatting for a lot of the night. The way he talks reminds me of my dad holding court at the breakfast table back when I was at high school, arguing as a method of preparing me for an exam. His questions are kind of confrontational, but his tone is warm and encouraging. Oozing with charm, my new friend makes a point of singling out everyone in the group for an individual mention as he departs. They all feel special. He's an important guy. Being recognised by him makes them feel important too. As he walks off, I realise he's left his hotel room key on the table. I innocently jump up and call out his name and wave the plastic car in the air and say, I think you forgot something. He walks slowly and deliberately back towards us. He comes right up close beside me to collect the card. His fingers clasp unnecessarily around mine as he leans in, face inches from my own and says, Jamila, you're so naive, it's delicious. He continues, that was meant for you. He speaks in this exaggerated faux whisper so that the whole group can hear him, and that's exactly what he wanted. Everyone is looking at us, everyone is laughing, and I am mortified. That is one occasion that stands out in my memory, but there were many. As a staffer, I was a young woman in a world of older men, and for many of those men, Parliament was their playground. Away from their family and friends for 22 weeks of the year, Canberra was a place where they worked hard and played harder. I know now, of course, that I was actually one of the very lucky ones. While sexual harassment certainly happened to me, I was never sexually assaulted, I was not raped. 
I was spared the indignity, that distress, that trauma, that brutality and the memories that go along with it. I was spared the experience alleged by Brittany Higgins, the brave former Liberal staffer who says she was raped on the couch of Australia's now Defence Minister, Linda Reynolds. While Brittany went public with what she says happened to her in late February, we know that Brittany was not alone and not only because other women have made allegations against the same man. We know Brittany is not alone because as women working in any industry, we know that our safety and our security at work are not guaranteed. We know that Brittany is not alone because just last week, an online petition for sexual consent education in schools was swamped by stories of women who said they were assaulted as teenagers by their male peers. This is not about party. This is not even about politics. As women, we know that in male-dominated environments, we are particularly vulnerable. According to a report by the Sex Discrimination Commissioner Kate Jenkins' office, almost 40% of women have been sexually harassed at work. This work, as well as similar studies, show that the rate of sexual harassment is much higher amongst vulnerable groups, including young women, queer women, indigenous women, migrant women, and non-binary people. Make no mistake, sexual harassment and assault tend not to be the fault of one evil wrongdoer. They are the result of a culture that normalizes the privilege of powerful men and says they can do and take whatever they want. In fact, nearly half of those people who have experienced sexual harassment in the workplace consider it to be normal behavior. Two in five are aware of someone in their workplace being harassed. Only one in five will actually make a complaint. While the nation's defense chief, Angus Campbell, reportedly thinks women can ward off the sexual violence of men by avoiding alcohol and presenting themselves as attractive, the truth is that none of that really matters, not in schools, not in communities, not at church, not at a bar, not at a party and not in the workplace where the very infrastructure, the so-called system that is supposed to protect us is actually protecting the powerful. I haven't met Brittany Higgins, but I know she did not come forward with these allegations for her own benefit. I know that from speaking to the half a dozen or so fellow former staffers who have called me in the last week or two, some multiple times, who have called me to whisper to reveal, to sob and to say out loud, some for the first time, that they too experienced sexual assault and rape while working in Parliament House. Brittany Higgins came forward to protect others. My friends tell me that is the only reason they would consider doing the same. I imagine Brittany Higgins made her experience public in both a desperate bid for justice and to make sure another woman did not experience what she did. And what did she get for her trouble? She got a media storm steeped in innuendo, a bunch of raised eyebrows, her boyfriend forced to resign his job, her old boss reportedly calling her a cow, and an employer, a government, whose focus appeared fixed on the political consequences and not their former employee's personal well-being. Let me take you on another trip down memory lane and give everyone a moment to exhale. When we were teenagers, my sister and I watched a lot of Neighbours. It was our go-to mode of decompression following classes and sporting matches, but before family dinner. We'd lounge on the couch after school, munching on the good biscuits if mum wasn't looking and inhaling an increasingly ludicrous set of plot lines. We were addicted. And I wonder if some of you were also. 
There was the episode where Harold fell off the cliff before returning five years later with amnesia and thinking his name was Todd. There was the car crash that saw Dee and Toadie plummet into the sea between their wedding and the reception. And then poor Toadie, his wives just kept dying after they got married. He was very unlucky in love. Neighbours released Delta Goodrum's Born to Try single as part of an actual storyline involving a very complex love triangle with Taj and with Jack. Paul Robertson was pushed pushed, I say, from the Lassiter's balcony after having lit the place on fire just a couple of years prior. The six possible suspects all lived in the same street and this provided literal months of content. And then in the year that I turned 18, the year I started university and would leave home, my sister and the old TV playing neighbours behind, what happened? Izzy falsely accused her boyfriend Gus of rape. My 15-year-old sister and I lapped it up. We called our mates on three-way dialing to dissect the shocking plot twist. It was appalling, disgusting. This fictional crime was so great that it seemed too awful to comprehend, even for the terrible Izzy. It was unbelievable, which is exactly right. It was unbelievable because false claims of sexual assault and rape are exceedingly rare. The most commonly cited figure is that 5% of rape allegations are found to be false. But to rely on that figure alone would be a misrepresentation because only one in 10 women actually reports her sexual assault to police. The vast majority of us stay silent. What this means is that 90% of rapes go unreported. And because the 5% of rape allegations are false figure, can, by its definition, only apply to reported rapes, this leaves the actual false allegation figure at around 0.5%, one in 200. And yet these are the stories we were all fed as teenagers. And it is the myth that is still allowed to permeate dinner table discussions and water cooler conversations. It is the undertone of internet articles and snide tweets. There is a repeated intimation that sad women can't always be trusted in these matters, that women make things up that women bend the truth, that women are mad, crazy, emotional people, that women lie. They don't. On Friday, a week and a half ago, the media reported that a cabinet minister was at the centre of a historical rape allegation made by a woman who had since taken her own life. A letter detailing the deceased's accusation had been sent to the Prime Minister, amongst other powerful political figures by the woman's friends. On Wednesday last week, that minister, the Attorney General Christian Porter came forward. In a press conference, he denied the allegations vigorously and categorically. He was visibly distressed and rattled. On Thursday morning last week, the Prime Minister dismissed calls for an independent inquiry. This is despite the fact the Prime Minister did not read the contents of the accusatory letter. He was merely briefed on them by others. During his emotional press conference, Christian Porter, the highest law officer in our country, asked journalists to imagine just for a second that the allegations weren't true. That is a perfectly fair and reasonable question for him to ask. He is the subject of serious life-altering claims that may well be false. However, the woman who made those allegations is now deceased. She cannot ask us to imagine the opposite. So we have to do that for ourselves. I'd like to share with you now some really powerful words that are not my own. While we can't be so vain to pretend to answers, we must be so humble to fall before those who were forsaken and beg them our apology. 
a sorry that dare not ask forgiveness, a sorry that dare not try and make sense of the incomprehensible or think it could, a story that does not insult with an incredible promise, a story that speaks only of profound grief and loss. We honour every survivor in this country. We love you, we hear you, and we honour you. Those are the words of the Prime Minister, spoken as part of his apology to the survivors of institutional child sex abuse. His speech was delivered in Parliament during October 2018 following the Royal Commission. That Royal Commission heard testimony from survivors whose abusers have since died. Survivors for whom a conviction of their abuser would never be possible, but for whom an apology still mattered. The Commission also heard testimony from the friends and family of child sex abuse victims who had taken their own lives. Their stories were meaningful and their evidence was significant in the Commission's final report. Just because the police have decided not to investigate does not render other forms of inquiry void. And just because testimony cannot be given by the alleged victim does not make an independent inquiry futile. At present, there is no clear forum in which this woman's allegation against the Attorney-General can be tested. It is imperative that one is created. Otherwise, the Court of Public Opinion will decide, and that serves nobody's interests. Thank you. I'm very grateful to Jamila for that incredibly powerful address. And it was one that she'd only written that very morning. But it spoke to the feelings of women around the country, and especially to those of us in the room. If you're a member of our Facebook community, you'll know that Jamila and I often do what we call the download, where we discuss and debate different topics. But on that day, I could sense her exasperation. So I asked her what about that moment was upsetting her the most. Oh, wow. I think that's hard to answer because it just feels like it won't stop. Like it's moment after moment after moment. And so it's not a single event that's upset me, but the rolling series of moments that paint a picture, I suppose, a picture that says Parliament House still doesn't listen to women and Parliament House still isn't safe for women. And if women aren't safe in the corridors of power in the home of our democracy, how can we possibly expect to be safe anywhere? One of the things that you and I talked about briefly was that there's now almost a sense amongst survivors that the Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame examples, as brave and extraordinary as they are, that there's an obligation to now either reopen, tackle or speak their truth. What do you say to those women today? I can absolutely understand that feeling of obligation and of responsibility to other women and to protect others and to come forward. That responsibility isn't yours alone. The data says one in five of you, it's a good 40 women in this room, has been sexually assaulted or raped in her life or will be. There are literally thousands of survivors in this country and the most important duty you have as a survivor is to yourself and is to look after yourself. And that may mean telling someone, it may mean telling a few people, it may mean telling police, it may mean telling the media. That is up to you. And there is no obligation whatsoever, no responsibility for you to tell anyone unless you want to. Because we have to make this story about you, even though I think the media and perpetrators 
want to make it about something else. I personally feel like this is the grassroots Me Too movement that we didn't get earlier. Do you think that's the case? I hope it is. Um, for those who don't know, you, you'll be able to find it quickly online. There's going to be an enormous rally on Monday next week in every capital city and I think they're moving to do it in a number of country towns as well. And to me, that points to perhaps something that hasn't happened in this country before. We haven't had the reckoning, I think, that the United States did and the UK did to an extent simply because of the strength of our defamation laws. And we know that women journalists, including yourself and myself, uh, journalists like Kate McClymont and Jack Maley and Tracy Spicer have had literally hundreds of women, including some very high profile women, come to them with allegations that they are simply unable to print because those defamation laws are just so tight. It's too dangerous for them to print them. So we haven't had the same experience that, that other countries have had. You have spent longer in the media than me and working in this space. Do you think it's the moment? Yeah, I do. And watching the emotion in the room and on stage, watching Noreen, um, I'm going to quote Natasha, we're on the cusp of some very, very big victories. I do. And um, I'm fascinated to see how the government, the federal government, and I guess other governments actually do respond. There's a lot said about our Prime Minister as a transactional politician. For those that don't follow politics closely, that means he does what the public want him to do. It's going to be really interesting to see whether the marches and the backlash to the way it's been handled so far. One of the questions I asked someone else, and I haven't asked you this, but if the Prime Minister was a woman, putting aside which shade of politics, what do you think? she would have done if she had an attorney general with the allegation as serious as the one that's been made against Christian Porter? I think it depends on the woman and it depends on the situation. I can think of all the complex things would, that would have come into play in that decision. I think had she been more forceful than perhaps the Prime Minister has been on this occasion, uh, a, lo a lot of people would have said, well, she's only done that because she's a woman. Had she not been forceful enough, I think a lot of people would have said that's not good enough because their expectations would have been much higher from a woman. So I, I suppose my answer is I think she would have been screwed either way, which is generally the way with, not great. with women politicians. <laughs> They're often in a catch-22. Um, whichever, whichever response I think a hypothetical woman prime minister would have taken, I think would have had problems for her in the media and how the public viewed it. But I think from a purely values-driven perspective, I like to think a woman would be more likely to have taken stronger action. And I also think someone who had worked in the corporate world more may well have, or in one of the professions. My, my husband is a medical malpractice lawyer, but doctors, lawyers, a whole bunch of different professions have standards, right? They have a set of regulatory standards. And just because you commit a crime, you may no longer be fit to hold the position of being a lawyer or being a doctor. But you may also do an act that is not criminal, but is still not considered compatible with you holding that profession because you might bring the profession into disrepute. For politicians and for ministers, that's the ministerial code of conduct. But the ministerial code of conduct says, what's not good enough is up to the prime minister. So it's incredibly, it turns, right? It turns on the thoughts of one person rather than having an agreed set of rules and standards that I, I think should apply. Well said. 
And while that may have been the end of our discussion at the summit, it's important that we keep these conversations going, pushing for more change, and most importantly, seeking help if we're struggling. And remember, that was from one of our live events, and you can become part of the movement by signing up at futurewomen.com. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, executive producer Jenny Goggin, sound production by Darcy Thompson. Thank you.